We're continuing in our series of message from the gospel, messages from the Gospel of John. The message became flesh. We're in these final two chapters. We're very close to being finished with the gospel, where the message is being delivered through the events uh, of the resurrection of Jesus. <clears throat> Have any of you ever worked as an apprentice to someone? I think there was uh, a time in history where that was more socially a part of the, the warp and weave of life uh, where you would uh, become apprentice to somebody who already knew a trade and then they would train you and you would learn and, and grow up into that. Um, I don't know that today we quite have that experience. Uh, you know, you may have been an intern, but there's not that sense of investment, I think, that I'm talking about here, where you, you're basically being trained into adulthood and uh, productive uh, participation in society by someone older than you. Um, and I think because of that, perhaps sometimes we don't, in our minds, have a clear picture or an adequate picture of what it means when we say that we are disciples of Jesus. The pattern the first disciples followed uh, was part of daily life for many people. Jesus was their rabbi, their teacher, and they were apprenticed to him. They followed where he led, they learned at his feet, they were soaking it all in. And I want you to think about that as we're looking at today's passage. Is that how you are living your life with Jesus? Are you truly living life as a disciple? I believe today's passage reminds us that that is precisely how we're supposed to be living our lives. I've titled the message today, Rabbi Jesus. And we're in John chapter 21, the first 14 verses. Let's start in verse 1. After these things, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Now he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas, the one called the twin, were together along with Nathanael from Cana of Galilee and Zebedee's sons and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter says to them, I am going fishing. They tell him, we also are coming with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. John prefaces this, uh, first of all, by connecting it with a very vague thing after these things. Uh, he, you know, the previous thing we were looking at, he told us it was one week later, so we, we know the exact timing of that. But this, beyond knowing that this took place after the events of Jesus appearing to the disciples and to Thomas, uh, we don't know exactly how long after. Now the fact that they are in Galilee instead of Jerusalem means that it's been at least long enough that they have wrapped up their time in Jerusalem and have headed back home north to Galilee. Uh, so they're there in Galilee. Uh, he says it happened by the Sea of Tiberias, which is one of the three names we know in the Bible for this body of water. It's called the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Gennesaret. Uh, but they're all names for the same place. Um, and John says that this event is a self-revelation of Jesus. He says it twice. Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And then he says it again. Now he revealed himself in this way. And I think it's uh, good 
that we think of it that way. What Jesus was doing here was communicating something about himself that was important to know. Uh, and I think we need to look at this whole passage with that in mind, that this is Jesus revealing something about himself to us. And this is how the whole thing took place. It started with Peter, Simon Peter. Uh, and John mentions seven people, seven disciples. It's Simon Peter and Thomas. We've already talked about Thomas last Sunday, the one who initially, when he heard that they had seen the risen Lord, said, I refuse to believe, and I've got to touch the wounds myself. I've got to put my hand in his side, or I'm never, ever going to believe. And Jesus actually graciously accommodated even uh, those kinds of demands from Thomas. And we know from last week his response to that, my Lord and my God. He mentions another disciple, Nathaniel, who was also uh, in some ways in John's gospel is kind of similar to Thomas because when Andrew first shows up and tells Nathaniel, hey, we found Jesus, you need to come meet him, uh, his initial response is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet when he encounters Jesus and Jesus says, I saw you when you were under the tree before. I don't know what was going on under the tree. I suspect he was in prayer about something significant. I don't know what. But he at that moment said, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because of that? Boy, you're going to see bigger stuff than that. And he's kind of parallel to Thomas in that initial skepticism and then that uh, expression of Jesus, not just as Messiah, but as God. He also mentions himself and does it obliquely as he does throughout the whole gospel. The word John is only used in the gospel of John to talk about John the Baptist. John never identifies himself, John the Apostle, by name. He never identifies his brother by name. I think he even mentions his mother and refuses to identify her by name. Uh, so uh, he, he, he knows when he's writing this gospel that uh, he's the last remaining living apostle and the uh, kind of attention that he's probably getting from people. Uh, and he doesn't want this gospel to be about him. He wants it to be about Jesus. So he, he, he only ever mentions himself obliquely in the gospel. But he and his brother are there, James and John and two other unnamed disciples. I'm assuming, given that he doesn't name him, that for whatever reason, Andrew, Peter's brother, was not with them. I don't know who the other two disciples might have been. Uh, but these are the seven. They're together. And Simon Peter says, guys, I'm going fishing. And then the rest of them say, well, guess, hey, we'll join you. Let's all go fishing. And... Uh, John mentions something that I'm certain uh, called into memory something in the readers that probably was called into your memory when you just heard it. They went out, got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Don't you rem remember immediately that there's something in the Gospels about Jesus and, and Peter and Peter fishing all night and not catching anything and... 
Uh, I think John, even though he doesn't tell us this in his gospel, knows that his readers are familiar with the other three gospels that have probably been around for about 20 years circulating, and people know about these stories. That's the reason he's writing this gospel, is to fill in a different eyewitness account about Jesus that, that provides something that the other gospels don't have. But he's assuming his readers are familiar with this, and he knows that they will immediately think of Luke chapter 5, how in those first 11 verses of chapter 5 we have the story of the beginning of Peter and Andrew and James and John and their life of discipleship with Jesus we know the story from Luke 5 that uh, Peter and his brother spend all night fishing catch nothing and in the morning they're there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee they're cleaning out their nets and Jesus shows up and there's a crowd that wants to listen to him teach and Jesus says to Peter would you let me stand in your boat and just set off just a little bit from the shore so that I can use that as a, a platform from which to preach and teach so Peter does that and Jesus teaches and when he's done teaching Jesus uh, tells Peter go deeper and cast your net and Peter initially says that's a waste of time I've, I've spent all night fishing I've caught nothing but then he catches himself and says but if you say it I'll do it so he goes out and does it and of course the catch is so large he can't even haul it into the boat he has to call over uh, James and John the sons of Zebedee to come in their boat and between the two boats they're trying to get the fish into the boats and the nets are tearing and that's when Peter falls before Jesus and says get away from me I'm a sinful man Peter says, Jesus says don't worry about that don't be afraid from now on you're going to be fishing for men and that's the moment when the four of them left their nets their boats their co-workers they left everything behind and began to follow after Jesus it wasn't the first encounter they had with Jesus, but it did mark the beginning of their change of commitment toward Jesus. They went from being part of the crowd that listens to him on occasion to becoming disciples. That's the moment that uh, we need to have in our mind because the parallels are inevitable. Uh, this whole thing is kicked off by another night in which Peter has gone fishing and caught nothing. And there's something kind of sad about this. Because we know from the, the previous encounter, uh, not the previous, the one before, the one the week before that one, where Jesus comes and appears to the disciples and says, just the way the Father sent me into the world, I am sending you into the world in the same manner. And he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And he talked to them about a ministry through which we are proclaiming to the world both the forgiveness of sins to those who believe and the retention of sins to those who reject the offering of forgiveness in Jesus. You would think the disciples would be praying, or perhaps they would be studying the scriptures. They would be in some way preparing to carry on the same kind of work Jesus has been carrying on. That's what he's told them. And instead, we find them back home and we find Peter suggesting, let's go back to what we used to do before Jesus. Let's go back to fishing. 
There's something sad about that. And of course, their experience is exactly the same as it was before they started following Jesus. They spend all night fishing and catch nothing. If you are a follower of Jesus, I don't assume you have to be, but if you are, have you ever found yourself like Peter in this moment? Tempted to go back to life as you used to live it before Christ? Let's keep reading in verse 4. When morning dawned, Jesus stood on the shore. However, the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus says to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. But he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and they were no longer able to haul it in because of the large number of fish. So again, they spend all night fishing, catch nothing. Morning dawns, and you, it seems like, okay, they're going back to the life they had before, but apparently Jesus is not going to let that happen because as morning dawns, Jesus is waiting for them on the shore to remind them that they're still his disciples, that he still has a task and a mission and a purpose for their lives. That they can't just move on like it's all over now. He's there on the shore. And again, John says this strange thing about him. And I'm, I, I believe that there was something about the resurrected Jesus that was different than the pre-resurrection Jesus. Paul, when he talks about resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, says that we will be made like Jesus in that we, our bodies will be transformed into glory. And he describes it as a spiritual body. Not because of that suggesting that it's an intangible body, but that there is something about this resurrection body in which spiritual and physical is intertwined in such a way that is numinous and mysterious and profound. And there's not this harsh division between what we see and touch and, and feel and taste and the physical and the spiritual. It's kind of all wrapped up into one. So that perhaps to perceive the risen Lord Jesus was more than just something you did with two eyeballs. That to perceive Jesus, something spiritual had to be involved. And we see this over and over. The risen Lord, people see him physically, but don't recognize him until there's some kind of a spiritual encounter. There's something different and glorious and transcendent about the risen Lord Jesus. So they don't know that it's him. And maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe it was just 100 yards is too hard to see clearly. Uh, but there he is on the shore. They don't know that it's him. But Jesus addresses them with, with uh, familiarity and tenderness. Children, kiddos, do you have any fish? The word uh, John uses there literally means a bite to eat. Do you have something to put in my mouth? And clearly they're on a boat, they're fishing, they've got the nets. So clearly he's asking, did you catch anything we can eat? Do you have any fish? And they have to admit, no, we haven't caught anything. 
So he does again what he did when they first started following him. Cast the net here. He gives them instructions on how to go about casting the net. And they do. And all of a sudden, there are so many fish in this net that seven grown men cannot haul it into the boat. They can't get it in the boat. It's too heavy. And uh, I'm sure even the disciples are saying, wow, this, this feels really familiar. I feel like I've been here before. Talk about deja vu. Let me ask you, how has Jesus reminded you of your initial commitment to him in moments when you've started to drift back to your old way of life? Have you noticed that he kind of chases us? Verse 7, then the disciple whom Jesus loved says to Peter, it is the Lord. So Simon Peter, hearing that it is the Lord, put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and cast himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net with the fish, for they were not far from land, about a hundred yards. Again, John never mentions himself by name, and as he's writing this gospel, he wants everyone's attention to be on Jesus, not him. So he only defines himself as what Jesus made him. Uh, the only thing that made John anything is the fact that Jesus loved him. The disciple whom Jesus loved, John. He says to Peter, it is the Lord. And I'm convinced there's something about this. There's this spiritual recognition. And he knows immediately who it is. And he tells Peter, and Peter knows too. And he cannot wait. He puts on his outer garment. In antiquity, uh, men would wear kind of a... a, a, a a tunic that went to here, kind of sleeveless underneath, and then another thing on top that kind of went open. So he's obviously taken that off to be freer to work. The word John uses there is he was naked, but I don't think that meant that he was stark naked. It just meant that he had taken off that outer garment, and now he was putting it back on, and he ties it on tightly to make sure it doesn't fall off. And he casts, John uses the same word he used to talk about what they were doing with the nets. They were casting the nets into the sea. John... Peter casts himself into the sea and he swims hard for sure. There's, there's not a moment's hesitation for Peter and maybe he's been toying with the idea of life returning to what it had been but the moment Jesus is anywhere on the horizon Peter knows there's no comparison. I don't want any of that. I want the life I've been living. I want to be with Jesus. And he can't even wait to row to shore. He swims to shore. And the other disciples come and they're dragging this net full of fish they've not been able to haul into the boat. Peter lost all interest in fishing when Jesus showed up. How has Jesus replaced other passions in your life? Verse 9. So as they got out onto land, they see a fire with coals set and a fish placed on it and bread. 
Jesus says to them, bring some of the fish you have just now caught. So Simon Peter went up and pulled the net onto the land full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net did not tear. Jesus tells them, come, eat breakfast. But none of the disciples dared question him, who are you? Since they knew he is the Lord. Jesus comes and takes the bread and gives it to them, and likewise the fish. Now this was the third time Jesus was revealed to the disciples after being raised from the dead. I think there were other moments where Jesus met one-on-one -on -one with people, the two on the road to Emmaus, but I think John means to say that these group meetings, he's already told us the first two, a Sunday evening with the disciples, and then the next Sunday with the disciples and Thomas as well, and now this third time uh, that he meets with a number of disciples, not just one or two scattered disciples. So they all get to land, and there's Jesus, and he has a fire started, and it's already coals. I mean, it is just right to throw freshly caught fish on it. It is ready to, to roast fish. In fact, he already has a fish placed on it. Now, John uses the singular there, so it was one fish, not a bunch of fish. Um, so clearly, one fish is not going to feed eight men. Uh, so he says to them, bring some of the fish you just caught. And uh, we see again the enthusiasm of Peter that we're so accustomed to seeing. He runs over and grabs the net and in some kind of a Herculean feat of strength hauls the net onto dry land that seven guys weren't able to get on the boat. He brings the net onto land and... John tells us it's full of fish, not, not, the, you know, not the little ones, not the ones you have to throw back. These were honking big fish. They were ginormous. And there was 153 of them. Now, since John wrote this, people have speculated about what to make of that number. And boy, they are, people are all over the place with it. I mean, some people think, well, if we go with Hebrew letters and assign numbers to letters and... They try to figure something out. Uh, I think the point that John doesn't throw anything in there to indicate we're supposed to make anything special out of the number means he's just telling us how many they were. Uh, I mean, if it happened to be a significant number, we might think, well, God providentially used a significant number to communicate something. But maybe that's the point. That the point here is the miraculous size of the catch, and not that we would think somehow that John is making up this number because it's so convenient that it happens to be 144, or it happens to be, you know, 48 or 24, or some number that we could assign some significance to. No, it's just a random number of a whole lot of Fish. That's more than you're going to find at a fish shop. You could go and uh, try to buy fish somewhere. You're not going to find 153 honking big fish in, the, in that display. You might find 10. Try to wrap your head around that. 153 big old fish. That's how many were there. And it's the kind of detail that's stuck in John's mind and that he could recall exactly because he had witnessed this himself. There's another detail here that's similar to but different from the account in Luke. In Luke, 
we are told that when they're trying to bring in this large catch of fish, the nets are tearing under the strain. John says, not this time. Miraculously, even though there was so much, the nets didn't even tear. It's like Jesus, but even better than they knew him before. Provision even better than what they had known before. And again, John says something that sounds strange, right? None of the disciples dared question him, interrogate him, and say, who are you? That's an odd thing to say. I mean, he's sitting there right with them. They would know who he is. It's Jesus. But I do think there's something different about him. Something transcendent about him now. And, uh, or maybe it's the idea of demanding, what, what exactly are you now in this resurrected reality? Are you kind of a demigod? Are you an angel? What, what exactly are we talking about here? Uh, they, maybe that's part of the idea of the question, who are you? Maybe more, what are you? But the reason he says they didn't need to ask is they knew. They knew he is the Lord. He's everything he's been telling them. He is God come to them, sent by the Father, eternal Son, but sent by the eternal Father, the one who can actually stand here on earth and say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Before Abraham was, I am. They know who he is. He is the Lord. Jesus comes takes bread and gives it to them. Likewise, the fish. We hear echoes there of the final supper Jesus had with the disciples where he gave them the bread and likewise gave them the wine or maybe uh, to the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus also gave the disciples the bread and the fish so that they would distribute it to others. There are so many points of connection, so many times before when Jesus had handed them bread and had handed them food. And Jesus is reminding them of a pattern they're very familiar with. And perhaps they're thinking, now that Jesus is risen, he's no longer around us constantly. He'll show up for a moment and do something, and then he's gone again. Uh, does that mean we're not returning to the way things were? And I think Jesus is trying to let them know that they are continuing the same journey they have started before. That it's not, let's go back to life the way it used to be. No, you are still my disciples. I am still your rabbi, master, and Lord. And I still have a mission for your whole life. I still have things to teach you. I need to train you to be the kind of human being you are meant to be. I need to train you in the skills you will need to do the work of the kingdom of God that I have prepared for you. I need to be your rabbi and teacher and master and Lord, and you need to be my disciple your whole life long. John says this is the third time Jesus was revealed to the disciples after being raised from the dead. 
Jesus reminded his disciples that even after his resurrection, they were still to live as disciples. How are you living your life as a disciple of Jesus? Are you seeking his guidance daily? Are you learning from him daily? Is he the one who is telling you what to do next? Where to go next? Jesus calls us all to faith. Just the way he called Peter and Andrew, the way he called James and John. That first time when they left the boats and the nets and everything else behind to follow him, that is a wonderful image for us of what it means to trust in Jesus. He calls us to receive him as master, as rabbi. He invites us to become apprenticed to him in life, to follow after him, to leave everything else behind and go wherever he leads us. He is God Almighty, so glorious and great that we can at best only comprehend the tiniest bit of who He is in our small hearts and minds. This means that this journey we are called on is the grandest journey we could ever take on. It means that Jesus has an inexhaustible store of Himself to share with us along the way question that remains to us is are we going to put our faith in Jesus? Are we going to claim him as our rabbi? Are we going to be apprenticed to him in life? We're going to sing a song and have a time where we can respond to whatever God has laid on your heart. If you today don't know Jesus as rabbi, as master, as Lord, if you are not discipled to him, you are not living your life in pursuit of him, I want to invite you today to leave everything behind and begin this incredible journey. All it takes up front is faith. Jesus, forgive my sins, take my life, and do what you will of it. If that's you this morning, this is your time. We're going to stand now. And I'll ask the people that are going to be at either, on either side at the back where the blinds are. Uh, there will be people on either side. If you have a decision to make, make your way to one of those two sides. And let them take your hand and share with them what God has put on your heart. And let them pray with you and encourage you. Maybe you follow Jesus and you've forgotten what it is that he's called you to do in life. And you are not living like a disciple. You're living like an acquaintance of Jesus. And you need to make that right. Go back and, and pray with these people who are there to encourage you and pray with you. Whatever God's laid on your heart, come now as we sing.